Hello everyone, welcome to the second Health Unchained episode of 2020. In this episode, I speak with Chris Plants, founder and CEO of Veris Foundation, which is a non-profit working to build smart contracts that interface with healthcare claims processing. We talked about the issues that healthcare incumbents need to evaluate in order to effectively adopt blockchain technology. And that's only when or if they actually need to use blockchain technology. I enjoyed my conversation with Chris and I hope you do too. But before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that I will be in Austin, Texas on February 26th for the Blockchain and Digital Transformation in Health 2020 event. I'll be moderating a panel on Web 3.0 and the future of decentralized healthcare. If you plan to join, reach out and I'd love to meet you there in person. You can find the Eventbrite link to the conference in the show notes and also on my pinned tweet on Twitter. One of my goals for 2020 is to improve my website, and I'd like to get your suggestions and feedback because I want to make sure that this show is most valuable for you. So please don't hesitate to reach out via my email, ray at healthunchained.org. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the Health Unchained podcast. Today's guest is Chris Plants, founder of the nonprofit Veris Foundation and healthcare blockchain expert at PA Consulting. We'll be talking about his experience working with C-suite executives who look at blockchain as a tool to improve their business and the state of blockchain adoption in the industry. Chris, I'm glad to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Ray. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate you taking the time and having me on. Uh, I, uh, this show is doing some yeah, appreciable work, getting people to think about blockchain in the space in a way that's meaningful. So thank you. Absolutely. No, thanks for joining. So can you tell us a little bit more about you know your background, uh, how you got to this place? And I also heard that you were at the JP Morgan conference. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about that too. We can touch on all of those things. Yeah, I, I just arrived back Thursday night. Um, how about I give you the Reader's Digest version and we can dig into the parts that you find interesting. That sounds um, good. Uh, my background is in engineering. Uh, I've, I've, I started up an IT consultancy in the late 90s, uh, ran that for about 15 years, um, moved into healthcare and senior living. Uh, and I've been doing uh, healthcare consulting work uh, for roughly the past 15 to 20 years on the operational side, whether that's turning around community hospitals, integrating home health, uh, working with uh, skilled nursing facilities, assisted living, pretty much uh, any piece of the system uh, with the notable exception of hospice, um, which I have not worked with. And God bless those who do work in that, that, that piece of the industry. It's tough. Um, on the blockchain side uh i and i think i think most of us come into this just by luck at some point right or at least prior to 2017 if you had some exposure it was because some event occurred and you were like hey what is this thing and 
For me, um, in 2011, I was having a birthday party, and uh, a childhood friend of mine was there, and uh, he gave me a Casasis coin for my birthday. And uh, which friend of mine, Casasis coin? I, I never pronounce this thing right. Cassasis. You know the the physical bitcoins you always see pictures oh, of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So he he gave me one of these, and um, I think like most people, my response was similar, and that uh, thinking that I was intelligent would, was that. Uh, the banks aren't going to allow this. Governments aren't going to allow this. This is a crazy idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that was the end of that discussion. Um, though I kept my eye on it after that because it was interesting in some way. Uh, and my friend Dan was qu quite uh, quite passionate about it. Yeah. Um, Dan is a, a Dan Moross who you may or may not know of. Uh, he there's a video. Or, sorry. There's a movie on Amazon Prime called The Rise and Rise of Bitcoin, which you may have seen. He he's the person behind that and the narrator of the movie. I believe that oh, came that's out. Awesome. In, yeah, that came out in 2014 and it was um like a documentary of what was going on in the space at that time is what it turned out being and it was roughly I think over 3 months where at that point that's when Bitcoin went from $20 to 250 or something like that. One mm -hmm. of the first big spikes and then the crash again. So it's a great movie to watch. I'm sure it's with most. It's available with most Prime subscriptions. Uh, you see a lot of the same behavior that we see in 2018, and we see today just happening. You know, the numbers just aren't quite as big yet. Uh, and it's interesting because you see a lot of the characters who are now big names in the space, like Vitalik is in there selling his Bitcoin magazine because he's the editor of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. it's a it's a really interesting movie, but um. Uh, <clears throat> He was the one who turned me on to it, and uh, from 2012 and 13, I did some mining, right? Because I'm like, this is kind of interesting, right? I can I can contribute computing power. I, I've got a lot of this because from doing IT work, and so I did mining. I uh, was one of the the lucky few who received one of the uh, Butterfly Labs mining machines. Do you remember that story? Not exactly. No. Um, so, do you want to tell us a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So Butterfly Labs was was making ASIC miners, and I think they're based in Kansas City in 2012 to 14. Uh, they were eventually shut down by some federal agency because they're, they're, what they were doing was they'd build the, the ASICs, they'd mine on them themselves for some period of time, and once the difficulty got higher, they'd mm -hmm. then sell you your ASICs. So they'd say, oh, we don't have availability for five months. <laughs> uh -huh. you, give us the you give us the cash. We'll ship it to you when it's ready. They had it at the time, and they just mined on the device themselves for a while. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> Much like a lot of the industry. I'm not surprised like, they got caught there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of, for uh, a technology that's about truth and transparency, there is a, or has been a lot of shady dealings, right? Mm -hmm. So I did that, but what it really, what really made this technology click for me was uh, in, 2015, I think, when I started to hear about smart contracts. Because up until then, it was an interesting um, bit of technology. But the whole idea that now, instead of tracking some asset, you could verify the outcome of some business logic and track this with certainty, that's a, that's a totally different thing than what we were talking about prior to that. And that's when that's when that that all started to click for me, and how that how the you know the three fundamental pieces of blockchain work together with consensus, distributed ledger, and hashes. Right? Like, why is this important? How how does this affect people who want to implement the technology? And 
when we can put business logic on top of it, what does this look like when we bring other additional parties to the table? So that's, that, was, that was when the genesis of the, Fer- the Veris Foundation was built. Um, we started that in 16, uh, launched that in uh, uh, late 17, 18, uh, and I've been doing a lot of uh, essentially thought leadership around economic modeling of blockchain since then. What have you seen like, in your experience has been the biggest challenge um, for getting people to take a look at blockchain in a more serious way, uh, specifically in healthcare? I'll start general and then we'll go to healthcare specifically. What I found is when we were, uh, so with the Veris Foundation, we were looking for investors, right? Um, VC, were, they were into the fintech aspect of blockchain, but they had no appetite in 2017 for healthcare. There were very little appetite. Uh, but when I would talk to uh, individuals at firms, specifically large firms, what I found was upper middle management had quite an appetite for blockchain and they could see how it would impact their business. But when it hit the C-suite, it would just die. Hmm. And the discovery that I had was when it hit the C-suite, it always hit it in technical language, right? Somebody would come and say, we have this great solution, it's immutable, it's distributed, you know, all these, all these very... Uh, technical like, jargon type terms, which if you're going to talk to a CFO, you should probably speak in finance, right? Not technical. If you're gonna if you're gonna speak to a CEO, you should probably speak in the strategy. You should speak their language. And sure. to me, that was that's the biggest holdup still to this day. Uh, there's not a a good financial model that exists to compel firms to collaborate with entities that are sometimes competitors, right? Uh, many firms don't even have an apparatus to do this and i think you see some of that in healthcare right if you want to have a payer working with a group of providers um, on a shared solution with some sort of governance right Um, so that you can decrease costs associated with transactions Mm -hmm. they're not used to operating that way they're used they might be used to they're they're used to doing jv sort of agreements in some cases uh, if you look on the payer-provider side, they're used to gamifying the contract, right? So that's all they've been doing for the past 20 years, right? Yeah. Um, you know, building 50-foot walls. And so, you know, the payer builds a 50-foot wall. The providers who build a 51-foot ladder get over it, and the payer builds a 52-foot wall. And we play this game until um, roughly $250 billion of our $3 trillion spend is just getting paid. Right, uh, yeah, it's affecting not just you know these companies but it's actually affecting the patients as well as taxpayers because a lot of this money is coming from uh, our tax money right right so what i find interesting about that aspect of it is cms center for medicare and medicare services actually i think is the only entity that can really effectively push foundational change in the system right now Hmm. and that's because they're constrained by revenue right it's not easy to raise taxes. Your commercial payers, though, it's easy for them to pass on the expense to the insured, right? <laughs> your, insur- your insurance rates just go up, and well, what are you going to do about it? Because typically, your insurance is decided by your employer, not by you as an individual. Yeah, I feel like, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like also the government can, I don't know what the limit for spending is for the government. I feel like, you know, at least with <laughs> private companies, uh, employers will at least have a competitive landscape, but with government, it's like, you know, it's a blank check almost um, because, you know, we're just so much into debt and 
seems like that's not going away anytime soon either. So yeah, I, that? <laughs> I think that we don't have nearly enough time for like discussion around like yeah. modern monetary theory, right? That's, yeah. a, that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. I just know that traditionally it's hard to raise taxes, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll we know with that. <laughs> it's harder to do that than what happens on the commercial side where either the commercial insurer raises rates mm-hmm. or what's, hap- what's happened more so over the past 20 years is your employer has taken on less of the expense. All right. And so, so instead of you working for IBM per se, and I'm not, I don't know anything about IBM's health plan. I'm just picking them as an example. In 1995, you likely had like a $500 deductible and all kinds of full coverage, um, almost no copays, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your pay, the, the, the amount that was taken out of your paycheck was quite low. Well, now today, what we have are um, healthcare savings accounts, high deductibles. Numbers of co-pays, um, your employer not taking on, uh, uh, you know, maybe only taking on 50% of that expense, maybe 75 at best, right? Mm-hmm. So that expense has also been shifted on the consumer as well. And it's been a little more hidden from that perspective. I see. So, so tell me more about the Veris Foundation and why you started it and what it is. Sure. Yeah. So, so we started this. I was working at the time at a community hospital turnaround project in western Pennsylvania. Uh, a close friend of mine, uh, Eric Lawler, was the executive VP there. And we were deep in doing some revenue cycle management improvement. Right? And I had had some experience in revenue cycle management before, but this was really getting into the nuts and bolts of it uh, because they were getting not, not only a number of denials, downgrades, you know, not timely filing, et cetera. And the complexity of that process just astounded me. Right? There's at least seven steps to it. Um, in some cases, you may have three, four, five parties associated with this. And this is all a result of Ray walking into his <laughs> physician's office, the physician providing a service, and the physician trying to get paid. Mm-hmm. Seems right? simple so enough, right? <laughs> it seems simple enough, but there are, you, until you really dig into it, you don't realize how, just how opaque this process is. And right. An example I will give you that you don't really see is, some physicians' offices use a, a intermediary to get paid from their payers, right? So it's essentially just a payment, like a merchant of some sort. What this merchant does is they take about, they go to the physician and say, I'll take 150 to 200 points to process these payments, right? Those are typical MasterCard, uh, you know, credit card rates. Then they go back to the payer and they say, I'm going to give you 50 points to, to use me. Hmm. Right. So the payer sees the use of this entity as a discount. You don't even see them. Right. <laughs> you don't know there's an entity that's taking one and a half percent out of that. You can't even see it. Yeah. No. And, and you know, the term disintermediation comes to mind. And I know it's a term that's widely used in the blockchain space. And it makes a lot of sense in, in healthcare insurance and claims processing. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what you're doing now, what your operations look like. So what you plan the, to do? So the Veris Foundation, we, we, made, uh, we made a critical mistake in how we positioned ourselves. Mm, I like when uh, founders admit their mistakes and talk about that. <laughs> so this is a good learning opportunity for my audience and other, other founders as well. So what we thought about was um, because the, the, the goal of this was to have a, to use the blockchain as a platform mm-hmm. to reduce the expense of healthcare in the U.S. in general, which therefore should increase the availability of healthcare, right? If we make it cheaper, more people can access it. Uh, we wanted to do that as a nonprofit. Um, 
we also felt that we had this really interesting idea where nonprofits traditionally have a problem starting up because they can't trade equity for capital, right? Even though nonprofits are the ideal entity for sort of like triple bottom line investment or accounting, right? People, profit, planet. They can't, I can't turn around and say, hey, Ray, um, I'm going to give you 50% stake if you can give me $10 million. They, right. there's, no, there's no mechanism for this. Right. So what we did is we looked at our platform as a way to be a proxy for this. And so we thought it was what the most interesting message was that the Veris Foundation could start up, trade you digital assets in turn in return for capital, right, that allows us to monetize the mission of the foundation. And we spent a lot of time with uh, nonprofit media and press trying to tell this story, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you could use digital ad. There's a way you could use digital assets to um, do fundraising in some sort. What happened was uh, that that group just in 2017 is not re- was not ready for that message. I spent most of my time on phone calls with writers and media who wanted to know how nonprofits could accept Bitcoin donations. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, the message we were trying to, to send was this is foundationally different. If you want to start companies that have an impact um, on people, profit, planet, here's a way you can do it. Um, we, pos- we didn't sell tokens. We had our chain fully live at the time. The software package we're developing requires the digital assets to operate. So we felt pretty comfortable that if we were challenged by the SEC, we could take that on. Uh, because we weren't giving you something with the promise of a future asset, right? This was all you were going to get. And it was required to operate our software, which is our argument is, well, how is that any different than a Microsoft Office license? Hmm. But so I, my understanding was you did conduct an ICO. So We did. Was, we okay. did. So, But you didn't sell tokens. Can you tell me more about that? I just want to understand so, the details there. I would say this is probably mistake number two. Okay. People were very confused about what they're buying, right? When they hear ICO, they're like, oh, I'm buying a token. Well, to be clear, in the vast majority of cases, a token is a promise of some future asset down the road. Like, and a good, a good one that went really well. I mean, right, not necessarily, is, I would say. Like a token is not necessarily a promise that can be used. But an ICO, initial coin offering... Yes, there is some implications there uh, in many cases where the person buying the new coins expect that value of the coin to go up in the future. So, I, yeah, I'm not talking about the speculative side of this of, okay. as, as to what the purchaser thinks. What I'm talking about is and the, while some tokens, right, the vast majority are ERC-20, right? Mm-hmm. They, they're standalone and they operate and they provide some functionality, right? Sure. The vast majority of them or a token to enable fundraising, and then they issue the asset later. One that was well was ICON, right? ICX, right? That's I true. forget what, right? So yeah. <clears throat> they issue all the tokens, they bring in the cash from the ICO, they do the development, then they turn over to you the actual functioning product, mm-hmm. right? That is clearly, as the SEC has defined it, a violation of the security rules, right? Because yeah. <laughs> you're buying something with the promise of something else. We what we had done is we did not sell an ERC-20 token or a NEP5 token, which is a NEO chain. What we did is we took the uh, NEO blockchain source code and we forked it and we modified it to our own use. Hmm. 
we, we knew that for processing claims, we were going to use the bookkeeping nodes to do some things around MPI verification for providers. Uh, but what it also meant was the assets that were purchased in the ICO are the actual assets. There's nothing, there's nothing to be received in the future. Okay. Does that make more sense? Yeah, it does. It does. So they're not using Ethereum to buy your tokens. They're using how how are they purchasing? Is it through fiat so, money or is it? So what we had to gateway? do is we we had to build an intermediary gateway that accepted Ethereum and uh, Neo, right? And uh, so what happened was you would register. You're issued a you are issued a, a Verus wallet address, right? And then you are issued Ethereum and Neo addresses. And as soon as uh, uh, funding is found in the Ethereum or Neo wallet, you are issued the corresponding amount of Verus uh, assets in your Verus wallet, which was a lot more difficult to build than just you know issuing an ERC-20 token and led people to say, I don't understand, right? Mm-hmm. I don't understand what it is I'm buying. Yeah. Um, and you know during that time, there was a lot of that going on. So there was a lot of misunderstandings and mistakes going on. So, um, mm-hmm. And you know, kudos to you for trying, because I know that must have been a really challenging uh time to navigate not just regulatorily but like technically speaking because the tools weren't out there or they were just starting to become out there so you know I, i'm sure that was a really valuable experience for you uh, i do have a question so you said you mentioned you had you used neo which is like sort of you know from what i've heard like the chinese ethereum so to speak what was your uh, you know do you feel like that was a good decision or we feel like that was a good decision for a couple of reasons we wanted the. We liked Neo for three main reasons. One is that the digital asset used to fund smart contracts was split from the digital asset that provides voting on chain, right? Okay. So, uh, in the Neo design, which the various designs a copy of, you've got Neo, which produces gas. Mm-hmm. Gas is used to fund smart contracts. The Neo can be used for to do voting, right? On chain governance, and we liked that because. We envisioned a future where, let's say, we walk into uh, Aetna, per se, okay. and we t- we're selling, we're pitching Aetna on the solution, and we tell them, you know, you're going to need roughly, you know, five million Verus to to fund your transactions on chain, because they're using that. If we were using Ethereum, right, and they had five million Ethereum, and they were using the Ethereum to fund the transaction, for a governance perspective, they'd never be really sure how many votes they would have available, right? because they'd have to spend Ethereum in order to do transactions on the chain, right? And they may have some coming back in the Ethereum model. They'd be doing mining, right? So they'd be getting some of it back. So they'd never be at 5 million. They'd be at some other number, which was uncertain at any point in time that a vote would occur. And we thought that added additional complexity, which was unnecessary, right? So we wanted to be able to say, well, when you buy 5 5 million Verus, that's what you vote with, right? This is your voting power on chain for, for upgrades and changes to the chain because we need to have a strong governance model. The second thing that we liked is the they use bookkeeping modes as part of a distributed Byzantine fault tolerance mechanism. Right? So what this does is it allows the those who hold NEO to vote for the what used to be called bookkeeping nodes. I forget what they're called now. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the consensus nodes, right? There might uh, at this point in time, I think Neo may have thirty or thirty-five consensus nodes. So there's really only thirty-five nodes um, coming to consensus in order in order to add a block to the chain, which adds speed, right? This makes it a lot faster. And the uh, 
the third thing that we liked about it was that um, the fee structure for contracts was something that we could vote on and change, right? Because we weren't certain that the economic models that we had to operate this thing were right. And I'm not sure anything you put together can be right for <laughs> the long term. And we needed flexibility in it. So the, all the fee structure around smart contracts on the neo chains were easy. You know, there's essentially a price list associated with them that we would use um, voting on chain to update that price list instead of saying, okay, if you want to if you want to enter into a smart contract, instead of spending ten gas, we're going to make it five because this just isn't working out for us. And those are the three core things that made us choose that technology. I see. Um, thank you for sharing that. I know it's a it's a bit technical for the audience. I hope some of them appreciate <laughs> it, and others might not might have gotten lost. And um, admittedly, it's not an easy topic for sure. How much? So you know, I want to jump back to your last week at J.P. Morgan. I was. Just mm-hmm. wondering, how many conversations were there about blockchain? Inside the conference itself, I was there all four days. I did not have a single conversation about blockchain. Okay. All right. That's, I think, do you think that's very telling or of the industry? or? I think it may be telling of the, the group that was selected there. There was a lot of biotech and a lot of pharma there. Mm-hmm. From payer-provider perspective in the healthcare system, there was some level of payer presence. Uh, there were uh, a number of the large you know, marquee uh American providers there, Intermountain, Providence, Geisinger, et cetera, the ones that we all know of, um, who talked in depth about what they're working on from an innovation and transformation perspective. They did not, none of them talked about blockchain specifically. That being said, some of those solutions could have been blockchain based, but they didn't want to say that in front of that audience, right? It's very investor heavy. Understood. So they might have mentioned the world decentralization in one of their briefs, but never said blockchain or tokens or or cryptocurrency or things like that. I I know there were meetings going on outside of the conference related to blockchain. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really what happened. The real work happens at the meetings outside of the conference. It's, it's um, everybody, because everybody is in one spot at one time, you set up as many meetings as you can with as many of the people that you know in the industry. Yeah. Do you think a lot of that is because these investors you know, major big investors are just risk averse to the regulatory issues that could arise by investing in the blockchain system. I think that's one of the reasons it's been so slow to adopt is just on a federal level, we just don't have clarity around taxation, account accounting for, for, you know, cryptocurrencies and especially future business models where people might be getting income for the data they generate, which is not something that's very typical nowadays. But in the future, it could be commonplace. Well, it's funny you say you make a mention of income for data models. There was a panelist who said during a luncheon, she said, I've never seen a business model where you can monetize data. So (laughs) and I looked I looked around the room and I'm like, well, Health Catalyst is here. IQVIA is here. I see multi-billion dollar companies. Does that mean? You don't believe it or you just missed the first couple of times, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I, don't um, I mean, it could have been like the context she was talking about, but no idea. That sounds off to me. It, it was off. Everybody, uh, everybody at the table just kind of looked at, everybody looked up at that one. Um, yeah. I think part of the issue with blockchain as a platform comes back to first some of our initial discussion that the right language, the right financial language isn't there, the right risk, risk language isn't there, the right I mean, marketing language is not there for it. It's still a very technology-heavy language when you speak blockchain, right? Can you go into 
uh, can you walk into Aetna, Intermountain, uh, Cigna, let's get, I guess, United, right? And, um, and talk to them about the financial impact that implementation of a blockchain will have. I mean, it would take many, you know, numerous conversations and I think with different people and the organization is so large and intertwined with each other. So it would be difficult, 100%. And I'm sure Mm. people are trying, but, you know, it's still a challenge. However, a lot of these organizations are starting to be, you know, they're forming these, um, these groups and they're trying to do pilots. And I think there is, like you probably said, the upper management level, there's interest there. But it's not reached a point where mainstream adoption has happened. Although there is uh, that insurance, I think it was uh, in three years, they said they want to have like 40 million members using. I, I think you're talking, is it the healthcare utility network you're referring to? I, mm, that's been, not is that, that the one? Specifically. Um, anyways, there's at least a dozen of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that, you know, there's the Healthcare Utility Network, which is, I think, being assembled by PNC Bank. There's um, the BCBSA one. What's it called? Coalesce? Uh, possibly, yes. I should know these. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's a Synaptic Health Alliance. Um, that's another one, correct. That's a major yep, one. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and quite frankly, at PA Consulting, uh, some of our clients ha- are starting to have these discussions as well. They're asking questions around it. So, uh, I think we've gone from hype and uh, noise in 2018, right? What's the price of Bitcoin to enough um, blockchain-based discussion in the media and mainstream to make people, to senior management, to start asking questions. I don't think the models are still there yet, uh, which is one of the things that's why I'm focused on financial modeling for this at this point. Sounds good. And for anyone more interested in these uh, groups that are forming in the blockchain space check out hashed health's newsletters i think the last few of them were focused on uh, these groups for me welcome to the health unchained news corner large healthcare companies are beginning to come together as consortiums in order to take advantage of the data sharing opportunities a distributed network infrastructure can offer I think we all agree that more data can generate better insights into our health, especially when that data is accurate and personalized. Companies also see the potential value of this in their strategic operations. Nine of these consortiums are featured in a Hashed Health newsletter series. In part four of the series, the authors outlined details of these nine consortiums. The use cases include drug supply chain and provider credentialing. And it looks like their protocols only use either Enterprise Ethereum, Corda, or the Hyperledger fabric. MediLedger being the oldest, launched in September of 2017. Six of these nine consortiums launched last year in 2019. I encourage you to take a look at this article because you might be surprised to see how many major healthcare institutions are partnering together. These consortiums will be setting the data governance models of our healthcare future. Check out the link to the article in my show notes. And now back to the show with Chris Plants, CEO of Ferris Foundation. Let's talk about your valuation model for companies and businesses. Um, you know, I read an article you wrote about this, and it involves how we value information asymmetry, um, the value of network effects in a platform, and also the speculation of a firm's growth over time. 
So mm-hmm. how does that factor in altogether and how does blockchain maybe change that equation or improve it? So I that equation is something I personally developed because I couldn't figure out a way to pro- appropriately value what blockchain can mean to a business. Um, part of the work that I had done uh, when meeting with you know, upper mid-level, upper mid-management was they would say, I need to go to my CFO and say, this is the financial impact of cooperating with some entities, which are many times our competitors, right? How does this improve the firm financially? I need to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And so my thinking around that began with, well, if we want to know the impact financially, we have an operational impact from using blockchain, right? And so um, ideally, through the use of smart contracts and consensus, we should be able to reduce the transaction cost of a transaction, right? So that would be the verification that a transaction has occurred, as well as the any sort of attributes associated with the transaction. And can but you give like an example of a, a transaction? Just so right. Audience... So let's say uh, I'm selling you bananas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm selling you five bananas, and it turns out one of the bananas is bad, right? Mm-hmm. So. I've got, uh, I've got accounting on my side. You've got accounting on your side. I send you the five bananas. My accounting team says, okay, I've got, a, I've got an accounts receivable from Ray for the value of five bananas. Ray comes here and says, oh, I've got an accounts payable issue for four bananas because one of the bananas was bad. Mm-hmm. And our, our back office goes back and forth till we reconcile these records. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's costs associated with that. There's the, there's the staffing cost, there's the software cost, and there's the time value of money cost, right? Mm-hmm. If you can do all this on chain, right, via a smart contract and resolve these things with consensus, all of those expenses should decrease. And that, you know, that's one of the use cases. One of the many use cases in the supply chain are around that. Uh, that's an operational impact to a firm, which is interesting, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not transformational to a firm in many cases, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, it's incremental value that you're getting. And... I would argue that a blockchain isn't, you don't get great value out of a blockchain until you bring untrusted third parties into it. Otherwise, if you already trust everybody and you have all these contracts, just create a shared database. Right. 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 Yeah. Why go through this expense to, of building a blockchain? Where I think it, you can make a very powerful argument for a blockchain is, is, is a platform. Uh, most businesses don't talk about the value of a platform because they can't achieve it. You know, we talk about Google's platform value. We talk about Facebook's platform value through history. We talk about Bell Telephone, Standard Oil. Um, think of the monopolies, right? Mm-hmm. Tremendous. Face- Facebook's a great one right now, Tencent. Uh, most firms are operating in somewhat mature environments, right? They're competitors. It's, it's a stable environment. They likely have two to three large competitors and a handful of other ones spread out. So they don't really think about platform value because they don't see a way to achieve it. The way I began thinking about this is, well, blockchain gives them the ability to share a platform with competitors with some level of governance when no one entity owns this platform. Because that, I mean, that's the holdup, really, right? If, if there's yeah. three people in an industry, and healthcare is a perfect example of this, looking to do something shared, you have to give up market power to an intermediary to do this. And the best example is change healthcare, yeah, right? I was thinking the like, same one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. What's what is the what is their purpose? They're 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 just sitting there in any variance between providers and payers in order to get paid, right? Mm-hmm. And there was enough of a need for it that 
entity payers and providers gave up power to them to do this. And now they have extreme market power over both. This is why many firms don't want to build platforms that collaborate. But blockchain should alleviate that, right? Because you're not giving up market power to any third party. You're distributing it amongst those who govern the chain itself. So that's what led to this idea that, well, let's think about fundamentally what a firm is worth. You know, it's worth, the, there's really three chunks, right? It's what a firm does with information and symmetry, which means what do I know that you don't know? What patents do I have? What, you know, et cetera. Uh, so, and that's really where the bulk of the work happens in firms, right? Like I've got to go get patents. I've got to get new technology. I've got to you know, do market research. I've got to get ahead. Then there's some element of the firm's value that's associated with the platform that they have, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's some value of growth speculation, right? So if it's a publicly traded firm, people are, you know, buying shares of this firm because they think it's going to grow. Like, like for a long time, Twitter, you know, had a valuation. They didn't make any money, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they had the platform part or the platform chunk, you know, pretty well established, though. <laughs> Right, they had the platform chunk, so you could. You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's a good point. Like there, that platform value was what you were really seeing in that stock value. So, in mature industries, though, like healthcare, there's no value to growth speculation. People aren't really putting a lot of money into that. So, you really have what you do with information asymmetry and the value of your platform. So, what if you could unlock? What if like? What if you could use blockchain to unlock a platform that your customers could access? That doesn't preclude you from operating on information and symmetry. There's still things you know that your competitors don't know. But if all customers could access one platform, you could then use the you know, network effects are modeled by something called Metcalfe's law, and there's a number of derivatives of this law. Uh, it's been tested with the valuation of Facebook and Tencent. Uh, and their stock value to show that, yes, the <clears throat> the value of the network is the square of the nodes or some derivative which is similar to that. So in a very simple example, let's say that myself, you, Ray, and um, some other party, uh, we work in an industry. We're part of an ecosystem where there are 10 customers. I have three. You have three. The other part, that other company has three, and somebody has one, right? Mm -hmm. So that means... If we were to take that model, we would say that the value of our platform is nine, right? We each have three customers on our platform. The value squared is nine. What if the three of us could build a platform, operate this thing in some way, not give up any market power? How would that impact the value of our firm? Well, if we build it, then we have nine customers on the same platform that we're sharing which by that Metcalf's law means the value of that platform is now 81 instead of 9. Wow, yeah, 9 squared. <laughs> right. Yeah. So now you've got a 900% increase in value. How that spreads out across the firms, right, That's remains to be seen, right? Do they each get a third? Does some firm get more than the other based upon what they're doing? But even if it's just a third, you've got a 300% increase in equity value. I can't imagine a CFO who would not listen to that argument. But now you fundamentally change the value of the firm. Quite frankly, it also affects the incentive packages of those operating the firm. It's not just incremental operational savings. Hmm. Yeah, and I know for Change Healthcare, at least they are, at least they have been working on blockchain to some extent. They are piloting projects, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because they are 
the organization people are trying to disintermediate, but they right. are also in the game and trying to become relevant. And I think they're doing actually a pretty decent job at it. And um, having you know all that data, I think, gives them a lot of competitive advantage. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how. What I, what, I, what I've found in my experience over the past year or two is, and it comes back to organizations aren't used to collaborating this way, is you do need an intermediary to stand these things up, right? Mm-hmm. You need somebody to come in and do this for you. Um, a good example, there's a supply chain for pharma blockchain that has been stood up by a third party, and I can't remember their name right now, but it integrates Pfizer, Biogen, and a couple other ones. Is it right? Melody? Or no, it's not the right it, one. It could be. I don't yeah. I'm not, I feel like, yeah, um, everyone check out the newsletter from Hashed Health. Uh, it has <laughs> all this information on consortiums. They did a really great job. Um, don't have that information right offhand, but yeah. So in that case, somebody has to come to the table and partner with them to get this thing started, right? And then they, once they learn how to ride the bike, they can ride the bike and go on, but they're not going to build this bike themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Healthcare, though, is, you know, so uh, your point with change, change could do that. Um, I think that they're in a good position to do it. The question is whether or not they're going to change their business model to do this. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your role, you know, consulting for clients and talking to large organizations, be it pharma or payers or or providers. Right. What are their challenges in general? You know, maybe not necessarily for blockchain adoption, but what are they looking at? What are their biggest problems right now? And I'm just trying to see if there is a link to how blockchain could possibly solve it. So is it like um, their technology, financial, legal, accounting, operations, strategy? In some cases, I mean, and this may sound uh, a bit backwards, I think in in many cases, our technology problem is we have too much technology. I like that answer. Interesting. Go on. We have too many systems, right? We have too many entities operating too many pieces of software. Um, these are challenges that are, that clients I work with have all the time. You know, when I you know if I flip it around on the payer side, not just from the technology perspective, it's just the contractual uh, interactions. If you're a if you're a provider of healthcare services, you're contracting with on average six different payers, right? Different contracts, yeah. different different payment mechanisms. They're all slightly different, different rules, right? It's a very, very fragmented system. Uh, and it, uh, my personal favorite example of why it's so fragmented is, you know, uh, the ACA-mandated healthcare information exchanges, mm-hmm. right, which we now have. Yeah. And the purpose of that was to have data shared and available to those who needed it. On a high level, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Do you know how many health information exchanges we have? I know every state has a handful, I think, so not sure exactly how many, but... The last count I had seen was 242. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's too much technology, right? Yeah. Right? And uh, I find it interesting when I see here things about um, the fire integration for EM, EMRs, right? Electronic health records. It's another technology solution that's supposed to make this easier, but... There's a fundamental problem here that is the holdup. It's not a technology issue, right? <laughs> There's something around the business of sharing data that's a problem. And you can make it as easy as possible to share it. It's not a technology solution, technology problem. It's, it's not going to be solved with technology, um, and it wasn't caused by technology. <laughs> Businesses traditionally 
have been incentivized to operate on information asymmetry, and that's where they see the value. They don't see the platform value yet. That's so interesting. Do you think that it'll be, what, two years, five years, ten years before organizations realize the value of operating on a platform, sharing data amongst their competitors in a way? So I think it's coming, right? The it's, it's coming because people are having discussions around it. When you see groups like Coalesce, you, you see groups like Healthcare Utility Network, you see um, there's all, um, those are just the healthcare ones. They see the value in this, right? A, it's not easy to show, well, they see there can be value. They can't quantify that value right now, right? How, does, how do we all become more valuable by sharing a platform? That's very difficult. And there are, quite frankly, no examples to point to out there that I know of, unless you're aware of some. Where you could say, "Oh yeah, the three of us got together. We put a put a, a blockchain-based platform together, uh, and it provides these you know these shared services to our client base." Right? I don't know of one. Yeah, I'm sure you know conversations are happening around that, but yeah, mm-hmm. um, I'm not aware of any that are very popular or working 100% well. You know, so I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I do know though that our, that our clients are starting to have these discussions, especially in the healthcare space, because they do see that like there's there's just so much waste because of all the technology and all the connections between people, and there's just it's too expensive. It's unnecessary waste, and so the discussion starting there around operational savings. In my opinion, we need to get it over to value, uh, what is the value of operating a platform, right? And how does this affect the firm, right? How uh, And how does this affect our risk, right? We could, because now, now we have an inter- interdependency upon people who sometimes we compete with. Right, exactly. So how do all those, you know, the existing contracts we have in place, how are those going to change? How are we going to work together? It's, it's going to be a different dynamic for sure. Um, right. And I think there's a lot more work that's done around that. I mean, you need, there need to be data sharing models and incentivize people to do so. Because just because you bring three people to the table doesn't mean they're all going to share their, their information, right? That you agreed to do. Um, and you got to be able to trust them to some degree as well. Well, well <laughs> isn't that the back and forth here? We've built a technology that doesn't require trust. Yeah. How do we deploy it in a way that we can actually utilize that? Right. For like... Make- for finance and for Bitcoin, it's, you know, there aren't, they try to keep it very simple. This is just cash, electronic cash that we're sending over the internet. But when it comes to complex data, health data, you know, those questions or those like protocols get more complicated. So yeah, the governance around that is going to be extremely important. And, and remember, all the waste that you see inefficiency in the healthcare system, that expense, that is somebody's revenue. Right, and you know who wants to give that up, right? <laughs> They're not just going to say, you know what, guys, that's a brilliant idea. It's the right thing to do. I quit. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> that's not going to happen either. To me, I feel like there'll be new types of jobs that'll come out of this. Uh, I think legal contracts in terms of, you know, what kind of data you own, what kind of data you want to share, and just how that's structured will be more uh, compartmentalized. So you'll be able to share specific kinds of data to specific people and all of that will be monitored and tracked and you know it just creates a new dynamic i think for these all these organizations i i absolutely agree and you know i think you can draw a very current parallel to um uh, uh, a, a branch of our firm does a lot of research and work around artificial intelligence and at pa we did it did some did some 
analysis around this because there's a fear of AI taking jobs, right? And jobs do leave when you have AI, but new jobs you create it. And quite frankly, there are a lot more fulfilling jobs to be in. Right. right? Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to see this in this space as well. Um, that to go back to our banana example, it's, you know, some people may really enjoy uh, accounting for what happened to those bananas and filling out a general ledger. <laughs> I bet you it's a lot, there are a lot more people who are much more interested in, in how do we develop this smart contract in a way um, that when Ray finds a, uh, finds a bad banana, uh, we code this in a way that's equitable to both firms, right? Mm-hmm. So we can then resolve the contract. That's a much more interesting problem to solve than uh, I'm waiting for the bad banana batch to come in for me to record today. <laughs> you know, that makes me think of how when software like spreadsheets or Microsoft Excel came out, when it first came out, I'm sure there were organizations who were still doing everything all their accounting on paper, right? They had mm-hmm. these accounting books, you know, separated by month and quarter and year, and everything had to be tracked on paper with paper and pencil, uh, you know, and the accountant would sign off on the documents or whatnot. But that's that probably took a lot of people, a lot of time, a lot of resources. So when Microsoft Excel came out or whatever equivalent at the time. Visical. Visical, okay. I remember that. That's the... <laughs> Where people... Visical. Were these people that were doing all the accounting work on paper, were they afraid of losing their jobs or losing their, um, or were they looking at this like, perfect, this is going to be a way to do my job better? What Do you know? Well, I think I was about six when VisiCalc came <laughs> out, so I wasn't, in, I wasn't in business, but I imagine it's very similar to what we're seeing today. People are afraid because of change, right? Mm-hmm. And change typically means you've got to retool yourself. Yeah. And I think traditionally, and I think this is, not the case so much anymore, but traditionally over the past hundred years, people felt that I've learned a skill by 25. This is my skill for the rest of my life. And so that's why that, that sort of foundational change of I'm going to use VisiCalc instead of writing my accounting on a paper was so hard. Yeah. We, we, we now can, we live in an era now where I think a large chunk of people realize that you got, you must continue to update your skill base on a yearly basis, right? Absolutely. And continue to reinvent yourself because change is happening so fast. Right. And it feels like it continues to accelerate as well. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, some of our uh, our new hires, I see the things that they know work on blow my mind. It make me think <laughs> makes me think to myself, I I got to keep this up for another 25 years to remain relevant. I got to keep running faster than they do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, one thing that you have that they might not have is the experience with communicating with these um, high-level executives and you know formulating your conversations around this so that they can understand the benefits of you know new technology, et cetera. Being able to speak the right language to the right audience is one of the things I would attribute to my success. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also something that if you're uh, you know you're a professional and you're operating in the world, you have to realize that that's probably the last thing that AI or anything is ever going to take, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's very contextual as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very qualitative, contextual, understanding the audience. If you can do these things well, then you can bring your expertise to bear. I agree. I think that will be, you know, the human connection part of AI is going to take the longest for them mm-hmm. to really grasp. So that's one thing. I that's one reason I think that you know we still will have the opportunity to earn an income in some way, and I think as we get closer to that. AI singularity or what have you, um, mm-hmm. our data, our behavioral data, our 
uh, not just health data, but everything we do, the conversations we have, places we go, the emotions we experience, being able to collect that into a you know digital data will be um, so important because that's the that's what AI is going to crave and like feed on in a way. So I feel like AI will be the ones paying us for just living. And you know I'm thinking like decades into the future, and um, that's my thoughts on how we might be able to live with AI. I I wouldn't disagree with that. Find like, trading trading your data. Um, monetizing a way to get that from you and gamifying it. I, I know people who are working on this. You know, what's the smallest reward we can give somebody to get them to give us their data, mm-hmm. right? Right. I, I just don't know whether or not that ends up good or bad. Yeah, <laughs> that's another conversation that goes, we could definitely right? have. Like, is this a good thing for our society or for human beings, or is it a slippery slope where we're going to lose our humanity and basically um, succumb to the powers of AI? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, that's certainly a different conversation. <laughs> sure, sure. But that I'm not qualified to speak on. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I have a few like kind of you know questions just to kind of wrap this up a little bit. Sure. And if it's not too personal, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? And I know you mentioned a few already uh, with Varys, but more generally, maybe. <sighs> biggest mistake. Um, can we use regret? Yeah, your biggest regret that works. So, I, uh, I uh, three years ago, my first son was born, and uh, I would say then, you know, when he was born, I was like, "Wow, I traveled forty-two years to meet you," and it's been, you know, I, it's it's been awesome, and it's made me think like, "Why did I wait so long to do this?" <laughs> right? Huh. Okay. You know, uh, I, there there were a lot of reasons I wanted to wait so long, but it's been like one. Of, the best thing that's ever happened in my life. And I have a second son now as well, but it, I, I regret that I thought for the longest time that you're going to be a terrible father and you can't possibly think you're going to, you know, help another human being maybe be a little better than you. Right. Um, so I really regret waiting that long. That's one of like, that's, it's very salient to me now. It's uh yeah, no, that, thanks for sharing that. 10 years ago, I would have told you about some dumb business decision I made, which are, there are many of, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I appreciate the more human answer here. I think it's really important that we, you know, not just focus on our professional lives and careers and how technology is going to be changing the world, but really let's look around at what really matters and what's close to us on a daily basis. I think that's, thank you for sharing that. It's really awesome. You're welcome. And congratulations. That's great. Two sons. Uh, it's yeah, it's 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 fantastic, and uh, yeah, somebody told me there were two pieces of advice that came along with it that both have been very very true. If you ever decide that's the route you want to go, one is um, uh, a friend of mine has five kids and works in uh, uh, in a restaurant, and people always ask him what how much his kids cost, and his answer is everything you've got. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't matter what you make, yeah. you're going to spend it on them. And the other piece of advice is the uh, the years are short but the days are long right so you're like you're like i just got to get the i got to get to bedtime i've got to get i just got to get to the other side of it the next thing you know the year's gone and you have a whole new person in front of you it's tough it's 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 amazing and and it's it's great it's very interesting yeah i'm sure the cost of having kids is definitely high but also i'm sure the value of having kids is priceless as well so uh i would totally agree huge roi on that (laughs) (laughs) okay uh have you have you changed your mind anything recently and what made you change it? I change my mind all the time. 
to be quite frank. Um, and I think that if you don't, right, you're not listening to what other people have to say, right? You're not putting yourself in their shoes or seeing their perspective. And I, I was, I was listening to a podcast a couple months ago, and one of my favorite authors is uh, Daniel Kahneman. Um, you may be familiar with him for the uh, he's the writer of Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, he's a Nobel Prize winner uh, for behavioral economics. Um, and he was on this thing, and that what I took away and I use all the t- I, I, I use all the time now is uh, the woman interviewing him asked what the purpose of education was, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, the purpose of education is to give us the ability to change what we believe, hmm. right? Yeah, seems <laughs> <It's>, accurate. <laughs> right, and so uh, to be frank, I change my my mind on things all the time. When we're working with teams on projects, I will be like, you know what? I know I said this last week. I was wrong. It, and it takes a important, you know, it's not an easy thing to do to admit that because I think a lot of people kind of commit to what they originally say and then just find a way to make it work as opposed to revisiting the original decision, thinking it through. I think it's a shame that people feel like they're like, I've got to, I've got to continue to back my position because I'll lose face. Right. And I understand that a lot of that is upbringing in society and the culture that you're in. Um, just, we talked about it 10 minutes ago. Change is happening so quickly. You cannot possibly have all the information to make a fully informed decision. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Good answer. If you had to have a microchip implanted in your body, where would you want it implanted? That's a good thing you're not interviewing 16-year-old me because uh, <laughs> you might get a pretty colorful answer to that. Um, oh. I wouldn't want a microchip implanted in my body. I would not. Um, I think that I, I may have shown a little bit of my bias on that AI discussion around the sharing of data. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had to get one implanted, um, uh, oh, probably, probably in my wrist. Yeah. Because I would hope it have some sort of utility, and therefore it'd be like instead of me scanning my phone right i could just scan my wrist right you wouldn't have to carry a phone or some sort of wallet around right but that brings me back to um my grandfather had this tattoo when i was a kid right i always thought it was a pig and one day when i was a teenager i said to him like it's like why do you have a pig tattooed on your arm yeah and he said it's not a pig when they issued social security numbers him and his friends all got a shield with the number tattooed in it and i i still think about that right like we th- we would never do something like that nowadays, right? <laughs> so it was a the shape of so it had this his social security number on his wrist in the form of a shield. So it was on his arm. On no, his it was arm? on his arm. On but, his arm. Oh, but as he aged, you know, like tattoos sometimes uh, deform. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think him and his buddies got the best quality tattoo in nineteen thirty four, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so when you asked me that question, that's what popped into my head. Like thinking of my grandfather telling me, yeah, I've got my, I got my social security number tattooed on my arm. And like if somebody were to tell us that they did that, we would look at them like they were nuts today, right? Yeah, and I'm sure, like, as you said, his friends did it. I'm sure, you know, they're not the only ones who did that back then. It's, it's really right. interesting. Right. Uh, can you name a business or technology leader, you know, in the public space that inspires you? I have a hard time being inspired by business and technology leaders. And I think part of that's because uh, 
I'm a big believer that what, no matter, you must work hard and be prepared, but luck has a bigger impact on our life than we think, right? Hmm. And so when opportunities occur and you are able to seize them based upon you being prepared, you think about how smart you are and how well you did. But when opportunities happen that don't go your way, you tend to say it's just bad luck, right? <laughs> and <True>. so <laughs> my, my, one of my beliefs on business is that, you know, you've got to just continue to create opportunities, right? So you can seize the right one that's actually going to go your way. And so, I, I, you know, when I hear business stories, I hear a lot of them that are just, this is what I did to become successful. This is my blueprint, right? Well, would that blueprint have worked in other situations? Maybe, maybe not. We'll never know, right? We don't know about all the other possible outcomes that didn't occur. We only know about the one that's in front of us. So I, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about business technology leaders. I will say that at the, at the you know, risk of sounding tired, I do like Warren Buffett, but only because of his principle that you, a lot of his investing is based upon the character and the integrity of those running the business, hmm. right? right? And so there's no substitute for those items. <laughs> right. Focusing on the fundamentals, right? Right. And without character and integrity, you, you, you can't. I can't buy a software package to replace that, right? <laughs> yeah. I can't. I can't put some sort of business operating model in to replace this thing. I think you must have it. And so, he he, he speaks about that often, and I find that like that's something that that is a bit inspiring, and I find very uh, uh, interesting. So, Chris, I know you're super busy, and I'm just wondering, when you do have free time, what are you doing? Well, um, much to the chagrin of my wife, I like drinking wine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like drinking wine, buying wine, pretty much everything associated with it and the food that comes with it, right? So uh, I do that. Um, I'll read a good – not a good deal. I'll read, uh, but with my – you know, with work, with the uh, thought leadership around modeling a blockchain, with my – kids and family there's not a lot of free time so when i do get it it'll be a good bottle of like uh, old rioja or maybe aged bordeaux or something like that do you have a favorite my favorite all right my favorite american winery would be robert craig um, they produce cabernets from the mountains of california my favorite european winery would probably be muga from the rioja region all right that's i'm gonna check those out thank you <laughs> all right uh so Wrapping up here, do you have any final takeaways for the audience or anything you want to share? Any questions I might have missed? I, I think to me, my biggest concern in blockchain and healthcare today is that we must speak a non-technology language to healthcare leaders in order to engage them, right? We must show the value of this stuff from a financial perspective and from a risk perspective, right? That is the way that we must engage healthcare leadership in order to get um, traction. You know, there are thousands of great ideas. Like we hear them all the time, right? Like you can come yeah. up with them. But, but the re I, my fundamental belief is that we do not have traction because we're not using the right language to engage healthcare leadership. And until we do, we're still going to be talking about these great ideas that we can't get implemented. You know, that just brings me, I just had a thought here. So we talked a lot about how big organizations would implement blockchain, but there's a lot of startups in the space uh, trying to, uh, maybe disrupt their existing mm -hmm. operations. Do you feel like there's a real threat for these larger organizations to be disrupted by smaller? I think disruption in healthcare is interesting because most disruptors are unable to get to the consumers themselves. It's not like 
Airbnb, which could get right to the person renting the hotel room, right? Or Uber, who could get right to the person taking who wanted the ride. A disruptor in healthcare can't get, to many cases, to the patient. They've got to go through the doctor, and they've got to go through the payer, right? And so it's, it's fundamentally different than most disruption. And I think that's why you see a lot of these companies trying really hard to disrupt, but they can't interface because, you know, some people don't want to be disrupted. And even those that do, they don't have the internal mechanisms to do this, right? They're not used to operating this way. And, you know, so if you're trying to do something that's an advantage, like I'm a disruptor and I'm trying to, you know, I'm creating something that keeps somebody healthier, right? Well, how do I, a patient that isn't likely to directly buy that from me, right? I've got to get a payer to approve this, right? Or I've got to get a doctor to recommend this thing, right? So you're go, you've got to go through somebody else who is already in the industry and entrenched. Now, the idea yeah. of totally disrupting a la, you know, Airbnb Uber model, I don't know how you can do that. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I could definitely see that perspective. And, you know, being that there are tens of thousands, probably maybe even, you know, more than that of digital health startups in the space trying mm-hmm. to get into uh, reach the consumer. Um, it just shows how difficult it really is. I, I think there's opportunity though down the road, not to be, not, not, not to be down on it. There's mm-hmm. opportunity based, based upon the changing fundamentals of consumers having more of a vote over spend via HSA plans. Right? So if you've got $12,000 in your HSA and you can go make that spend directly, that's an opportunity for a disruptor to get right to the consumer. But the problem with that is, if, is, is how many people have HSAs that are fully funded, right? Um, I you know that there's a statistic, which I have no idea whether or not it's true, is, is that roughly 50% of the country can't afford an un, uh, uh, unexpected $500 expense, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. I, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> and I do know that a lot of people do not have fully funded HSAs, and that's part of the problem with employers moving to them because they'll say, okay, next year we're going to have a uh, uh, catastrophic plan with uh, you know high deductible. You're going to have an HSA, but you got to wait a year or two to fund it, right? And it's up to the individual to decide to fund it, which means a decrease in their take-home earnings, which they may not be able to handle. And so that's the avenue by which I think disruptors can get right to consumers. And it's still partial. Chris, I appreciate your time today. This was a really great conversation. I think the audience will enjoy it. Um, Thanks again, and I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Absolutely, Ray. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on here. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org, and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.